Okay, I already mentioned that we're in First Peter picking up where uh, Brent left off, and I, I need you to know right up front, um, I didn't put my hand up for this text. I did not say, like, give me this one. This is what I want to preach on. Um, this is one that was assigned to me, okay? So uh, bear with me. And, and, and the reason I say that is because um, it's with, a, like, a really heavy heart that I preach this today. This is like some heavy... Um, this is heavy stuff for us. And um, it's also, though, with a hopeful heart that I preach this um, because the word of God's capable of, I don't know about you, but like there, there's so many things that we all know the word of God does, right? Where it, it encourages us and, um, and uh, it builds us up. It strengthens our faith. You know, it rebukes us. But like the fact that the word of God straightens us out is rad. Um, and I, and I know that scene is like a negative thing, but, um, hopefully we who are all like where our primary purpose goal, uh, is to be more like Jesus every day. We look at the straightening out that the word does and we go, thank you, Lord. Like, thank you for straightening me out. Thank you for, you know, pointing true North again. Thank you for recalibrating me again, because we're out there all week long, uh, whether it's on the TVs or in the little circles that we run with or whatever, hearing sermons that are contrary to the sermons that Jesus preaches. And, and so like in a way it feels like on Sundays, like us as pastors haven't have, have 40 minutes to like undo like hours of like junk that's happened. And we know that that's, that's not on us, but I, I, I praise God that his word does that, that we can come to it and that he will, um, that he will straighten us out. I, 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 I love being straightened out. I need being straightened out daily. I think some of you do too. Uh, most of you. And so, um, Again, today, if you have a problem with some of this, first, first of all, let me just start with this. My wife's going to be like, you were way too apologetic. I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, the pastors are available and, and willing um, to have conversations on these things. We know these are hard things. We're not up here just to do, like, drive-bys on you and then, like, disappear. Um, and so we, we want to wrestle and work through these things uh, with you so that we're all growing yeah, um, toward Christ. Um, and so emails are fine or conversations are fine on things like this because I, I get that this is a monologue and no one gets to object, um, even though we have had that actually over the years in the middle of sermons. Uh, hopefully that won't happen. But, but basically I get to stand up here and you don't get to respond. Um, but I also want you to know hopefully if I'm handling this right, if my exposition is correct, um, ultimately you really have to argue with the word of God rather than me. Um, so I'm going to try to take that safe road and make sure that I'm expositing properly so that the argument's not with me. Um, basically, if you're just coming into Peter, here's Peter in a nutshell, and you can go back and hear all of Brent's uh, sermons. Um, they're all online, everything he's done up to this point. But basically, the book of Peter, First Peter, is this. How is the Christian to live in a hostile and oppositional world? That's First Peter in a nutshell. How is the Christian to live in an hostile and oppositional world. And I think maybe right now for the first time for a lot of us, we're worth saying, oh, that's, that's my reality too. What, is, what does that look like? Yeah. And so we're going to come in today on uh, verse 13 of chapter 2. And this whole, this whole subject, just to start off too, I'm just going to give you the end before we start. The subject here is really, we're going to talk uh, some some politics. We're going to talk about how we sit under that foundation and that arena, which uh, I know some of you love. Um, 
But the, the subject through, through this, this whole entire passage is um, subjection. It's submission. Peter's teaching us how to be a submissive people and saying, this is how you live in a hostile and oppositional world. And that sounds weak and backwards to a lot of us. But that's actually what he's doing. He starts with us before our creator, before God. He starts with us before the authorities, the governing authorities and human institutions. Then he goes down to like our vocation even, master and slave. Then he goes into your home. And he's talking about wives to husbands. So as we step through this, he's giving us a thorough lesson on what it looks like to be submissive and how it pleases God. And so um, having said that, um, let's go ahead and jump into the text, run through this. Verse 13, chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is a challenging text for me for two reasons. Number one, because I love rebellion. I always have. Uh, I, I came out of my mom uh, doing everything they told me not to do. And um, that's kind of like my specialty, my talent, my ability, uh, my gifting. Um, I, I, I love rebellion. Uh, I just do. In fact, if I'm to be super honest, that's part of the reason that I was attracted to Christianity um, is because it's so con- it's so counterculture. It's so upside down, um, so upstream, so punk rock um, that I'm like, yes. Um, and, and, and now don't give me I, I love Jesus for more reasons than rebellious reasons. But um, so so I, I love rebellion. And, and so that's one reason why I look at a text like this and um, it doesn't sit easy. But the other reason that this text is challenging is because I hate submission. And, and of course, they kind of go hand in hand. Uh, they kind of hold hands, maybe, um, or kick each other. I don't know. Uh, but uh, I, basically, I love rebellion because I don't like people telling me what to do. I do not like people telling me what to do. Um, and I hate submission because I equate it with weakness. To me, it just means you're weak if you come under somebody else which is all that submission means, to come under. And I hate it even more when I'm asked to do it with someone or something that I don't agree with, that I don't get down with, because then they're not even worthy of it. Right? So, so once again, just like we've shared with you guys before, pretty much every Sunday, this passage, this sermon is for me first. It destroys me first. Because this is not a natural text for me. This is something that, that rubs against me. When we go through these texts during the weeks as preachers to, to bring something to you guys, we're the first ones on the beach with what God is saying. And we just want you to know that. Uh, I don't, I don't, none of us think that we're up here and you guys are down here and we just need to bark at you. Like, we're good at submission, you stink. That's not the way this goes. Like, we're all in the same boat. This is something that kicks, kicks against our sin nature, our flesh, the thing that's actually native to us. And so together, we all need to look at this and camp out on it and say, Jesus, give me more you. Bless me more you. Right? 
The reason that this subject matters greatly to us, I believe, now more than ever, is because it's very common for the Christian community to be among the most vocal and hostile when it comes to anti-government banter and hate. We can be downright noisy, we can be rowdy, we can be nasty sometimes with our vocalization, with our criticism of the government and the other human institutions that are above us. And I've been forced through this text, just like I said, to ask myself, to ask myself why. Like, where does that come from that the Christian community um, tends to be so loud and so critical and so disruptive? It, do we get that from our Bibles? Is that a doctrine that we've been that we can find here that we've been taught so that we have a green flag to to do that, a green light, or is it a "don't tread on me" attitude because we're Americans? My my prayer again for all of us coming into the sermon today is that we that we might submit to the biblical answer to that question today. Why are we that way? Where does it come from? And if it ain't from God, are we willing to do something about it? Then I would pray that that we would. Um, The bottom line is that I don't want us to be found, any of us, opposing God on something while thinking that he's pleased by it. Have you ever done that? It's like the story of my Christian life. Like, like... Like having the veil ripped back at some point from something that I've taught hours and years into and gone, had it wrong. Hopefully it's just that we want to be right in him. So verses 13 and 14 says this, be subject for the Lord's sake. And, and again, we're not going to, we're not going to um, take a scalpel to this. Like some of this language is pretty clear. So I, I, I really want to focus on a certain aspect or tone of what's being said here, and you'll notice that as we go through. 13 and 14 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. The phrase that catches my attention most when I read these two verses is the phrase, For the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Because what that does is it takes the purpose of submission from being about the man, from being about us or or them, and it places our obedience to subjection front and center before God. In other words, that subjection to human institutions has a real value here, vertically, before God, rather than just here. It's, It's for His name's sake how we act here. So, so this tells me that my willingness, my ability to, to be subject to that which exists is something that he's interested in. He's interested in it as far as how I conduct myself before these human institutions. It tells me that how I perform and conduct myself within, around, and under the political, social arena that I find myself in means a great deal to him because it directly reflects upon him. And not only does it directly reflect upon him, but if I'm rebellious or hostile or downright defiant to those human authorities and institutions, I'm actually found to be in defiance of him. I'm actually found to be opposing God. Romans um, 13 says this. Let me just read you a couple verses here. Let every person, this is what Paul says in Romans, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. 
Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. I I don't know how we can screw that verse up and misinterpret it. It's pretty straight. It's pretty clear what's being said there. That we're actually in defiance of, of Him when we're in defiance of these things. And you're thinking, I know what you're thinking because it's the same thing that I think. Yeah, but He's not speaking to our situation. He's not speaking to 2021 America. He's not talking about Joe Biden. Certainly not. He's certainly not talking about Kate Brown. Right? He's not talking about our progressive left and all the the godless whack jobs over there that are promoting evil and changing the rules. And I would say you're right, he's not. He's talking to something a lot worse. I know this is difficult for us to get out of ourselves and our time and our context, but we must. We must, if we're going to please God in this, get out of ourselves just for a minute. Because these words that Peter's writing here were written to a church at a time when the ruling government and the authorities and the institutions they were under dwarfed what you and I sit under today. They were far worse at that time, far more evil, far more godless, far more corrupt, far more controlling. And Peter's saying, submit to them. They're from God. We cannot even begin to compare our current political climate to theirs. They don't even match up. And yet he's saying to them, God's put them there, submit will. How can it be that God would put a people contrary to him in power might be the next question. How is it that he would do such a thing? And, and the only answer that I have for you is for his own narrative, for his own reasons, for his own purposes, for his own grand plan. He, see, God doesn't owe us an explanation on everything that he does, but we owe him our cooperation in everything that he asks. The question is, do you trust him? Because I know what it looks like, just like you know what it looks like. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look like there's any aspect of what's going on or the trajectory that we're on could be of him. And so I would ask you, reading what we've just read, do you trust him? Just as the devil is God's devil, the government is God's government. Some of you, I'm just getting some weird looks right now. And and honestly, like... That's okay, like I would expect it, but I'm going to say that again. Just as, just as Satan is God's devil, means he's on God's leash, he's not sovereign, the government, no matter how evil it is, corrupt it is, wicked it is, is God's government. And that makes things a little better. Maybe not for you, but for me. Take a little more comfort in that. This seems to be hard to believe, but if you have, again, a complaint, just take it up with Scripture. Don't, don't email me. No, I'm just kidding. You can email me. You can call me. The bottom line in these verses is this. These verses are making clear to us that the powers that be, verses 13 and 14, as evil as they may be, are not there by chance. They are not there by Satan, ultimately. They are not there by ballot count, ultimately, or sideways ballot counts. 
The question is, are we willing to accept this? And by accept, I mean submit to that which God has commanded us to. Verse 15, for this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. See, foolish people are always going to put us under a microscope. Always. Um, and, and, and what they do that for is to look for the flaw that excuses their unbelief by finding a reason to discredit ours. I mean, that's just the way it, it works. By finding us to be fools in our faith. By finding us to be hypocrites. They're, lo- they're looking for the, the crack in the armor. And the truth is, if they look close enough, they're going to find it. They just will. You and I are an imperfect people. But the even greater truth is that for many of us, they don't have to look close at all to spot our weaknesses and our hypocrisy. They can spot it a mile away. They can spot it from a distance because we are loud and we are proud of our disdain for the human institutions that exist. We're loud, we're so loud and so proud about how right we are and how wrong they are. How righteous we are and how wicked they are. Which is an extremely ugly flaw to flaunt regarding a people who are supposed to be known for their loving kindness, their compassion, their gentleness, their patience, their humility. See, our our conduct matters. Our character matters. Our response matters. To wrongdoing matters. It all matters. It preaches a sermon. And what does it say? What kind of product are we putting out there in our daily lives for people to consume? Because it matters greatly to God. And so we must ask ourselves, is it one that puts forth the sweet aroma of Christ or the nasty taste of worldliness and pride and death? Which is something they're already well acquainted with. They're already acquainted with it. Are we like them? Are we just like them? Do we respond to things that we don't get down with just like they do? And the bottom line of what Peter is saying is this. If they're going to hate us for who and what we believe, let them. That's fair game. But let's not give them a reason to hate us for our bad conduct. That's what Peter's saying. Our bad character. Our bad behavior, let's not give them a reason. Our self-righteousness, let's not give them a reason. Our inability and unwillingness to submit to the most basic authorities that God, our God, has put in place, let's not give them a reason. It is by living upright, submissive, godly lives that the onlooker is silenced. It is in our response to the mistreatment and opposition of everything that we value and hold dear that the non-believing world sits up and, and... takes notice, maybe even is able to see by the how, how we live under that, how we respond. Verse 16, he goes on to say, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And I know that, that some could say, oh, finally, here we go, the, the word free. You know, now we're, now we're talking to Americans, uh, the, the, the free people in the land of the free. Um, and, and he's not addressing Americans. Um, he's addressing our spiritual state, not our geographic one. Um, not our nationality. Not our constitutional rights, which have seemed to found their way, found their way lately in some Christians' minds on the same level as Scripture, somehow. I have no idea how. 
Um, and it's just, it, it's amazing to me how eager we are to stand up and fight to protect our constitutional rights while ignoring the real fight that's going on within us over our Christian rights. Do you know what your Christian rights are? Do you know what your constitution is, as is given by Jesus Christ? They're found in Matthew chapter 5. You don't have to go there. Just listen. These are your rights that Jesus has given you. You have the right to be poor in spirit. You have the right to mourn. You have the right to be meek. You have the right to hunger and to thirst for righteousness. You have the right to be merciful. You have the right to be pure in heart, thanks to Jesus. You have the right to be peacemakers. You have the right to be persecuted, even killed, for righteousness' sake. And I I just want to make sure that we all see the difference between the two constitutions. Okay, Because the one that our nation gives us is all about this. It feeds me as an individual. It gives me rights and the ability to pursue my happiness, whatever that means, right, by protecting me. It's all this way. It's all about us. I mean, I can't even go to a gun store and get ammo anymore because some of you have bought it all. You know what I'm saying? Like it's at your house. I'm coming to your house if something goes down. It's all, it, it, it all goes this way. And so, like, it's no wonder that we're so attracted to it. What about the Constitution that Jesus gives us? What about the rights that Christ gives us? Which way do those go? They go this way. I don't know if you noticed that. All of them. They don't feed me. They feed you. They're all about God first and others first before me. And so they're completely different. They're completely opposed. And I would hope that, that you and I as followers of Jesus would love and, and grow a, a greater um, allegiance to that more excellent constitution, that we would be able to see the difference and examine ourselves by how we're thinking and what we're putting our, our hope and happiness in. Um, we were never guaranteed that which we were given in this country. I don't know how many of you um, went to God prior to birth and said, I want to be born on this part of the map. Uh, Like, we're we're here because God's put us here, okay? But whatever this this nation has been and was founded on or whatever was not promised to you. It was not promised to me. It's not a promise that we find in Scripture. We find a promise in Scripture of a kingdom that's coming, that in every way transcends the imperfect ones that exist. And and so hold on to that promise. Protect that promise in your heart and in your mind. All right, because things are changing and they're going to keep changing. And I think we all know that now. Right. This This is not our promised land. This is not the city on a hill. We are not Israel's replacement. In fact, you don't even see anything about America in the Scripture. It would seem... That we're the last ones to the party and the first ones to bed. And, and, I, can't, and I can't tell you what that means. Other than let's, let's, just, let's just get our eyes on the kingdom that we do know about. Okay? That's all. These two constitutions are, are not the same. So, so how is it, according to Peter here in verse 16, that we are a free people? And the answer is that we are spiritually free. We are spiritually free. That's how. 
We are no longer oppressed by sin. We are no longer held down by sin. We are no longer in bondage to sin. We are no longer at the mercy of sin to conduct ourselves as other people do. That's how we're free. We are now free to do what's right. To walk in what's right, even if it's underneath something or someone that's wrong. We have been spiritually set free by the blood of Christ so that we no longer have to obey our sin, but we can now live for, in, and by righteousness toward God first and then towards others. That's what Peter's getting at. Paul tells us in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we've now been released from it. Someone with the key came to the cage, to the cell that you and I were in, and opened the door and let us out. We don't have to sit in there anymore. We've been released. The challenge is that because we know this, we can sometimes act as if or think as if or live as if we're above the existing people, places, and things in our newfound freedom. And we're not. Peter wants to make sure that we rebuke that thought. So we've been made, basically, here, free to do right to and before others, which means that we can now walk in a a manner worthy, reflective, pleasing to the one who bought us out of slavery, sin, rebellion, hostility. In other words, we are not above, listen to this, we are not above the governmental authorities now because we belong to the highest authority that exists. But rather, we are now better at being subject to the authorities that exist because we belong to the highest authority. Does that make sense? And we can do this because God puts them there and we're his people. Therefore, we are not a people who use our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but rather live as children, citizens, witnesses of the Most High God. Of the Most High God. 17. Honor everyone, love the, uh, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Um, there's this word honor, which comes up twice here. First, it's used as something we should have for everybody. For everybody. For everybody. Believer or not, wicked or not, Republican or not. Everybody. Next, it's used for the emperor, the king, the president, the ruling authority. Believer or not, wicked or not, Republican or not. I know this is a hard one to get past. And what does honor mean? Well, the Greek word here, where it comes from, it means a fixed value or reverence. A fixed value or reverence. And I think the question that I had was, is that even possible? Can I actually value or have a reverence for or truly honor someone I flat out disagree with in every way? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes, we can. Um, How many of you, all you went to school, right? (laughs) I'm assuming. Did you all stay? No, I'm just kidding. Um, So how many rode the school bus? I know some of you automobiles weren't invented yet, but um, (laughs) yeah. Um, So school bus, um, we all had that bus driver at some point. That was the, the grade A world-class jerk, right? So, like, I lived, like, five mo- In fourth grade, I had this dude. I'm not going to give you his name. I don't want you to go look him up. Um, I had this dude that was driving our bus, and we lived, like, five minutes away from the school, like, literally five minutes away from the school. There would be days when we didn't get home for, like, two hours after school got out because 
This dude was constantly going on rampages over anything on anybody, right? And don't get me wrong. Like some, of the, some of the kids were punks on the bus, and they were, like, messing with this dude. But this dude would literally stop the bus for anything, anything. Everything was a teaching moment or actually a yelling moment, right? Like he knew how to shut the bus up, and he would scare. He used, like, these scare tactics. This dude was just, like, intimidating. He was horrible, there was nothing honorable about him or the way that he did things. And yet, I had an honor and a reverence and a value for him anyway. You know why? Because this dude drove the bus. You know what I'm saying? Like if we were going to get home to our parents and our video games that day, it's because this dude was going to make sure we got there. And so like it mattered. And so like because he drove the bus, he was worthy of honor. Do you know how I showed honor and reverence to this man? By not being one of the disruptors on his bus. I never gave him a reason to look at me. I never gave him a reason to stop the bus because of me. I never gave him a reason to yell at me. So the way that I honored and showed reverence for this man was how I behaved on his bus. And it's the same thing for you and me, Christian. The way that we behave on the bus matters. We can actually show honor and reverence and a fixed value on people that God has put in place, whether they deserve it or not, by how we ride on the bus. Does that make sense? Cool. Let me figure out where I'm at. Having said all that, take a drink of water. Consider what that may look like in your life. When we jump on social media, oh, yeah, here he goes. Yeah, I see it. Some of you don't think I see. I see every, if, if we're friends, I see everything that you're commenting on. <laughs> that stinks. When we jump on our social media and make derogatory remarks or snide remarks or perform sarcastic verbal drive-bys without, about our president or about our governor or about our local authorities, we are dishonoring God, no matter how right or true your position may be. Do you really need to tell the world how much you disagree with something every time you disagree with something? Do we really need to do that? When we do this, we're part of the problem on the bus. And the people of God shouldn't be. See, part of how we testify of a perfect kingdom is by how well we live in a faulty one. How well we testify of a perfect kingdom. Oh, sorry. Part of how we testify of a perfect kingdom is by how well we live in a faulty one. There's a difference between suffering honorable persecution and deserving every bit of the persecution that you get. And some of you are that person. And some of you know that Christian. If you're not. Right? Where we go out and we create a a mess in the way that we've done something or spoken, and then go, oh, I'm suffering like Jesus. Look at the way they're talking back to me. It's like, no, you did that. You did that. It seems like there's a lot of American evangelicals right now who are just wanting a fight. A fight over things that just shouldn't matter to a people that have their eyes fixed on a future kingdom. 
A whole lot of Christians want to be the Jesus that turns tables over. You know what I mean? I want you to understand that when you read that in your Bible, he wasn't turning them over towards the government. He turned them over at the religious people who were misrepresenting his father. We need to be careful that we're not doing that. A lot of people want to be the Jesus that turns over tables, but a lot of people don't want to be the Jesus that put the soldier's ear back on his head when Peter cut it off. In the last six months, I have received more persecution, dirty remarks, dirty words, hateful gossip thrown at me by Christians, by my own people, than anybody outside the church. I I think it's a COVID thing. We all just went loony when we got locked down. You know what I mean? We all all became that much more turned in and self-aware, and we just started getting funky. And um, I've had my share of, of just some weird, being called some weird stuff over the last year. It's been interesting. Most of it's been because of my submissive, passive stand on the election. Passive. COVID. And on just the general national slide into moral oblivion. Because I haven't screamed, screamed and kicked enough about it. I've been called a sellout. I've been called a sheeple. I've been called unpatriotic. I've been told that my head is stuck in the sand. I've been told that I'm the problem with Christianity. That maybe I am. God knows that I have wrestled with this each time it's happened. They're, most of them come from people I love and I care about. And I don't want to be on the wrong side of Jesus. So I take this seriously. When I'm called out, like, I don't want to be a sellout. I want to be behind him. I want to be right with him, doing what he's doing, thinking like he's thinking, right? And so I've, I've questioned myself over and over again. I've questioned my doctrine, and I've questioned my theology on this stuff because I don't want to be found wrong. And, and through all this wrestling that I've done with myself, there's this image that I can't get out of my head. Like it won't go away. It's just louder and louder and clearer and clearer every time I'm thinking about this. And it's the image that we get, and I'm going to read it and you just listen. It's Isaiah 53. I I cannot stop thinking about this. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up, we're talking about Jesus here, he grew up like a plant. Like a, uh, before him, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one who, from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, sorrow, our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. You ready? Here we go. Buckle up tighter. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed 
And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his what? He didn't open his mouth. He did not open his mouth. Like a lamb, buckle up tighter, that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. That's all I could see as I'm questioning and wrestling myself. What would Jesus do? What did Jesus do? Right? I want to ask you a couple questions in light of that text. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that Jesus? Does that embarrass you? Does it make you ashamed that this is the man that you follow and worship? Was he weak? Is he just weak? A coward? A sheeple? Because it says he was. If Jesus, who is the God-man, submitted before his spiritually backward government, mouth closed, not demanding his rights, unjustly put to death, all the while doing it with the greatest conduct, character, and honor, so be it. That's my hero. That's my hero. I want to be like that. In fact, not only do I not see what he did there as a weakness, I see it as the ultimate display of power. It's the ultimate display of power. Any of you see the horrible movie Schindler's List? Which is actually a really good movie, but horrible content. So there's that dude, um, Ammon Gorman. He was the really evil one that was put to oversee the concentration camp. And so he was the dude that would get up in the morning and before he would go get coffee or go get breakfast, he would just pull his gun, go out on the balcony and pick off a couple Jews, right? Uh, that, like that's how he was. And him and Oscar Schindler are sitting around one night after a party and they're having this conversation. And, uh, and Ammon says, um, power is control. It's control of the people. And Schindler says, no, that's not power. He says, power is when you have the right to do something and you don't. That's power. See, you and I sit here today enjoying what we enjoy with the most blessed hope that any human being can have in the kingdom to come in glory with our Lord because of the power of Jesus and the subtlety of his suffering. Everybody wants a parted sea, and then they'll believe. Everybody wants a burning bush, and then they'll believe. But Romans 1 tells us different. In fact, when God lived in the person of Jesus, there was a ton of people that lived at the same time, that followed him around, that heard what he said, that saw what he did, all the miracles he performed, and what? They walked away. Why? Because our problem isn't with proof. We have all the proof we need, according to Paul in Romans 1. Our problem is that we're rebels. We don't know how to submit to authorities that we should be submitting to. That's our problem. See, the power of God unto salvation is in the gospel message of the subtle sufferings of Christ. 
he did something. He could have just cleaned house. You know what I'm saying? He could have opened his mouth and, and threw a few blows because he had every right to. He was unjustly punished. He was unjustly murdered. But he submitted to that backwards, evil, wicked government so that you and I could sit here today and know who he is. That's what the submission of Jesus has done for you and I. Tell me that ain't powerful. We are here because he was meek and he was quiet and he went through with something even though he had the right to do the opposite. This is what we're talking about here, guys. This is what Peter's talking about here in submission. How we live is a testimony of the gospel. Even before people, especially before people who do not deserve it. So let's do it well. Let's do it well. Jesus did not take up a crusade for his rights. He took up a crusade ultimately for others. For others. This is the Beatitudes. These are Jesus-given constitutional rights. If this doesn't appeal to you, and I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm actually saying this because I love you. I feel like so many of us have been inundated for so many years with false gospels. And I just want to make sure that if you come in here and I'm the dude, I'm the mouthpiece at the pulpit, that I'm not responsible for you walking out still thinking they're true. I just want to make sure you're getting the real one. If you don't find this message attractive, then the truth is that you don't find Christianity attractive. I don't know how else to say it. I know that's harsh. I don't know of any better way to clarify the heart of Christ and Christianity to you, but if the thought of this kind of submission before a people that don't deserve it disgusts you or causes you to disagree, it's a good possibility that you have bought an American nationalistic gospel, not a Christian one. A don't tread on me gospel instead of a father forgive them for they know not what they do gospel. The goal of the Christian is not to get our favorite candidate in office. The goal of the Christian is to live peaceably and honorably under whomever it is that we find in office. Because that's what pleases God. And I want to please God. And I want you to want to please God. I want us to please God together. Our submission to earthly authorities is not a weakness to our faith. Know this. It's not a weakness to our faith. It's actually a testimony to it. So suffer well. Live peaceably with others. In communion, this is why we come to the table, right? Basically what what you just heard, because Jesus paid in full for the rebellion and hostility that we had against God and others. That's why it's here, to remind us that it's been paid in full. Not by us, but at, at his expense. Do you know how he did it? He did it by submitting to those who were over him, even though they did not deserve his submission. That's why we get to come to the table. That's why we get to ingest the body and the blood of Christ, fully imputed to us as if his righteousness is ours, because it is, by faith, because of his work. So enjoy it, celebrate it when you come, that everything's been done for you. Lord, thank you so much for... um, Thank you so much that your, your real gospel, like what you actually want and teach, um, has been preserved and is able to be known 
Thank you that there's almost nowhere we can go in Scripture, no page we can turn to where you do not plainly declare the glories of your accomplishment and your work. And we just say that we accept it, God, today. Thank you for showing us how to be submissive. Thank you for showing us how to be long-suffering and patient. Thank you for showing us how to suffer well that people may actually see and be given life. Help us to be those people that are mindful, God, of our character, how we live, how we respond in a way that's pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for living a perfect life, dying a sinner's death, and walking out of the tomb so that we could enjoy every bit of it with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.